Welcome back to Abstract Algebra, the most difficult math most of us, if not all of us, have ever dealt with. We're just going to get right into it this time because the last episode was very long as a result of the extensive amount of math and information we had to learn. Anyway, we're going to start with ring theory. Ring theory studies the algebraic structures known as rings. An algebraic ring is a structure that generalizes another structure in abstract algebra, that is, the field. Fields are sets in which all of the four arithmetic or arithmetic operations are defined. The ring itself is a set of elements that is equipped with what is known as a binary operation. And of course, a binary operation is a calculation that combines two elements to produce another element. And an example, because of course, binary operation, like we all know that four plus five equals nine, the binary operation is plus, is addition. This binary operation, though, satisfies properties of the set that are analogous to addition and multiplication of integers, as in 1, 2, 3, and all other whole numbers. An element in a ring need not satisfy any numerical guidelines, for the element can be an integer, a complex number, or even a polynomial, uh, or a square matrix, which is just a 2 by 2, 3 by 3, 4 by 4, 5 by 5 matrix, a function, or a power series, which is any series that can be written in the form uh, the summation, the summation of infinity, it's just the summation of, um, it's a summation where the lower limit is zero and the upper limit is infinity of x minus a times n, where n or the lower limit of the summation equals zero, and where the upper limit of the summation is infinity, as I said. Uh, a ring is an associative uh, group under the multiplication operator, whereas a ring Another ring is a commutative group under the addition operator. Now, associative property basically means that you can switch around the parentheses and nothing happens. So an example of this would be five plus six plus seven is the same as five plus parentheses, six plus seven, they both equal 18. Um, and then the commutative property on the other hand means that, for example, of multiplication, a times b equals b times a. So seven times six equals six times seven, 42. Or 8 plus 9 equals 9 plus 8, 17. It's essentially the same thing. Ring theory basically studies the structure of these rings and the representations of such rings. This representation study of rings involves modules. They're algebraic structures used in algebra to generalize structures. So basically, for example, we'll discuss this later in the chapter or later in the episode. Essentially, a module over a ring it's that's that's the most popular representation of it is a generalization of the vector space over a field where the scalars or the elements with magnitude but not direction of the vector space are elements of the ring rings in what are defined as the special classes of rings including but not limited to group rings division rings uh, which of course a division ring is a ring where division is possible and universal enveloping algebras meaning the most general al algebra that contains all the representations of a Lie algebra, of course, along with other properties such as homological properties. So homology, homo is means same. So obviously you can kind of see that it's looking at the relationships between things uh, which pertain to homological algebra, the study of homology association, which is homology is the same thing as association in this situation in algebra and polynomial identities where an equation is true for all values in an initial polynomial. For example, x squared, the polynomial x squared plus 16x plus 64 is x plus 8 squared. 
it's the same thing, or x plus 8 times x plus 8, parentheses. There exist two major types of rings. There are the commutative rings and the non-commutative rings. It is fairly obvious what the major difference between these two types of rings is. Commutative, commutativity. That's a very hard word to say. Commutative rings are commutative, whereas non-commutative rings are not. Commutative rings are understood better than non-commutative rings as a result of the fact that they arise more often in natural settings and that they are interconnected with three major fields of mathematics. That is, those are, not that is, algebraic number theory, algebraic geometry, and commutative algebra, commutative algebra. That's actually the theory behind commutative rings. Um, but yeah, and of course, yeah, commutative algebra is the branch of mathematics under which commutative rings are studied, whereas non-commutative rings are less understood as a result of the fact that unexpected behavior arises in them, which shall be discussed. So, to give a more rigorous definition, a commutative ring is a ring in which the multiplica uh, multiplication operator is commutative, meaning that a times b equals b times a, 19 times 10 equals 10 times 19, 190. Um, and the study of these rings, of course, is known as commutative, al commutative algebra, which studies commutative rings, their ideals, as in subsets of a ring that, can, that generalize certain subsets of the integers in a ring, and their modules. There exist numerous examples of commutative rings, including polynomial rings, a ring that is formed from a set of polynomials, and algebraic integer rings, rings formed from algebraic integers, which can be complex numbers that are roots of monic polynomials, and of course a monic polynomial is a polynomial with leading coefficient, the coefficient of the variable with the highest degree in the polynomial is 1. That was one sentence. There is a lot, there, there are a lot of very rigorous terms, and it's important that you like explain them, of course, because they get really, really difficult. They can get really, really, really difficult. That's why it's important that we, we explain them, we pertain them, we understand them, we discern them. Um, but yeah, it, it, this is very technical. The thing about abstract algebra is that it's very technical. We're not doing the mathematics part of it, but we need to understand that it is very technical. And the problem with it being very technical is that we have to learn a lot of things to figure it out. Which is why 2,000 of the words in a 3,000 uh, page, 3,000 word script are specifically based on explaining something that has just been said. But anyway, on the other hand, a non-commutative ring is a ring in which the multiplication operator is non-commutative, meaning that a times b does not equal b times a. Um, yeah, that's essentially what it is. Um, non-commutative rings refer to rings that are not necessarily commutative, as in they are not required to be commutative. Some results in non-commutative ring theory, the study, of course, of non-commutative rings, are special cases of commutative rings. Earlier it was revealed that the non-commutative rings were less understood than the commutative rings because non-commutative rings were had mysterious and odd, not well understood properties. Non-commutative rings are mysterious as a result of the fact that there are significantly more non-commutative rings than there are commutative rings. And of course, larger, more complex subjects are universally less understood in math. Additionally, the non-commutativity of non-commutative rings means that the left and right ideals of the ring are distinct. 
As a result, the left ideal of the ring could follow certain guidelines, whereas the right ideal may not need to follow those same guidelines, or of course vice versa. In commutative groups, on the other hand, this does not exist. Some examples of non-commutative rings include matrix rings, where the elements are all real numbers and are all greater than 1, so n is greater than 1. And then there's also group rings that are made from any group that is non-abelian, and meaning non-commutative, of course, and the quotient ring. Now that's all we have for ring theory exceptionally Compared to group theory, that was really easy. Group theory, in my opinion, group theory was the most difficult thing I've ever tried to learn. And I definitely do not have a complete understanding of it, no question. The other ones are pretty simple. The other ones have been pretty easy for me, to be honest. I haven't had much of difficulty at all really understanding them. Group theory has just been torture. Everything else has been quite easy, but, ever, but this whew, just went right over my head. I need the mathematical, so the thing about math is that to be able to understand it, you need math to understand it. And there is no math in trying to derive something specifically from words. Now, if you, as we get it later into this chapter, you'll see that this is very heavily mathematical. We're going to get into a lot. I, I can see A's, B's, C's, numbers, and a bunch of stuff. They're integrals. I have a ton of equations set down for this episode. But group theory, oh my god, it was not easy. Very, very difficult. Now, I'm sure if you spend enough time trying to understand it, you probably would be able to figure it out. Because when it comes down to it, all of it, all it's explaining is something very simple. It's explaining the easy things through proof-based pure mathematics. It's getting rid of the axioms and adding in the true rigor, the true intellectual rigor as we defined it last episode. That's essentially what group theory is. That's essentially what abstract, abstract algebra is. It's, it's representing these simple structures in complex ways. They're representing it in complex ways so that we can gain a better understanding of that universal language we call math. But anyway, we're going to be going to fields now. Fields, while being given their own header and category in this chapter, are, of course, not even technically in things in and of themselves. They definitely are structures. They're very important structures, but they're not, like, they're not, they don't have their own theory. They do. They have field, we have field th theory, but that's, we do have field theories, but we're going to specifically talk about it in terms of ring theory. Now, they're technically figments of ring theory, although, of course, they exist well beyond merely rings, but they are part of that ring operator, technically. They're still their own structures in and of themselves. But anyway, a field is a set under which addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division are defined, so both the two main arithmetic operators and their inverses, and meaning addition and multiplication, with their inverses as subtraction and division. A field... A field also behaves similar to, uh, these operators in that field also behave similar to the four arithmetic uh, operations on rational real numbers. The most well-known fields are those whose elements are rational numbers, real numbers, complex numbers, basically any of those three. These fields are studied in mathematics through subjects of studies such as number theory and algebraic geometry, among other fields. Fields are important notions and branches of mathematics, such as mathematical analysis, which deals with the analysis 
of some major structures in calculus, including limits, integration, differentiation, and infinite series. It is also important to algebra for any field, as was discussed earlier, can be used as the scalars in a vector space, which of course will be discussed later in the episode. Formally, a field is a set represented, we're going to give a formal, more rigorous definition of it. It is, a, it is a set represented by F, so just a capital F, with two binary operations on F that are called addition and multiplication. Understand that this isn't the direct definition of addition and multiplication, for the binary operations simply resemble addition and multiplication. Two elements A and B can be expressed as sums, as products, and as their inverses. So in algebra, we of course define the inverse of addition uh, as subtraction and the inverse of multiplication as division. For example, A plus B is expressed as the sum of A and B, and A times B is expressed as the product of A and B. The properties of the field, known as field axioms, are in, go as follows, essentially. You have the associativity of addition and multiplication, meaning that a plus b plus c equals parentheses a plus b plus c, which is outside of parentheses, and a times b times c equals a times parentheses b times c. Or for another example is four times four times six, so 96 equals four times parentheses four times six. And then there's also the, commutative, the commutativity of addition and multiplication, where a plus b equals b plus a, and where a times b equals b times a. There's also the additive and multiplicative identities, where two different elements, 0 and 1, exist in the field, where a plus 0 equals a, or b plus 0 equals b, or really gamma plus 0 equals b. It doesn't make a difference, but it's still the same thing or where a times one equals a, because of course one a is just simplifies to a. Anything times one is itself. Nine times one is nine, nine trillion times one is nine trillion, etc. And then there are also additive inverses where every element a has a corresponding inverse negative a, so something like a plus negative a equals zero or 10 plus negative 10 equals zero. And then there are also multiplicative inverse, inverses where every element a has a corresponding a to the negative first power or one over a equaling one. For example, eight is this eight's multiplicative inverse is one eighth. So eight times one eighth equals one. Um, as long as a of course equals, does not equal zero, is any number excluding zero. Because remember that one over zero is undefined. Eight over zero is one is undefined. Anything over zero is undefined except for when it's zero, zero over zero, because technically, technically that's indeterminate calculus. That's that's limits. That's Los L'Hopital's rule, of course, but that's different. Um, that has nothing to do with abstract uh, algebra. Well, I mean, kind of, but not really. Um, and then there's also the distributive. The last thing is the distributivity of multiplication over addition, where a times b plus c equals AB plus AC, because of course distributed properties. So A times three different things will be A times one, A times two, or A times X one, A times X two, and A times X sub three. So it'd be X sub one, X sub two, X sub three. The next one we're gonna go into is modules, R modules. Like many other algebraic structures that have been and are to be discussed, modules have already been loosely defined in this episode and in the last episode. As is likely already known, modules are algebraic structures that are expressed through the module over a ring concept, where the module is a vector space and the ring is a field, where the scalars in the field are the elements of the ring and the module is a vector space under which the field exists.
As a result of this definition, it is derived that a module is synonymous with a vector space and that it is an additive abelian group, meaning that addition in the set is commutative. Earlier, the representation theory of groups, which we learned to be the branch of mathematics that studies groups by representing their elements as linear transformations in a vector space, was ascertained. Modules are closely related to representation theory of groups, for they represent the vector spaces that undergo those linear transformations. They are of particular importance in commutative algebra, the theory that studies commutative rings as we know, and the modules over those rings, and homological al algebra which is the mathematical study of homology. They're also associated with algebraic geometry and algebraic topology. And of course, algebraic topology is the branch of mathematics that uses abstract algebra to study topological structures. While abstract algebra is abhorrently technical, it represents inarguably, as I've said like four times, simple structures. Suppose R is a ring with a multiplicative identity of one. The first module over this ring is the left arm module M, which consists of an abelian commutative group and the multiplication operator, where scalar multiplication R times M means M, and all R elements in R and XY elements in M have three properties. That is, those are distributivity, associativity, and multiplicative, multiplicative identity. One times X equals X. It's the multiplicative identity. The operation of R on M is known as scalar multiplication, where X times or XY times VW equals XVYW. So uh, 6996 is 5454. That's, that's a scalar. The scalar is a coordinate in this situation. There also exists another module, the right R module M. Actually, a scalar has to be that. Um, the right R module M, also M sub R, also known as that, where the only notable difference is that the ring acts on the right. For example, the scalar multiplication of the ring is instead of R times M gives you M, it's M times R gives you M. There exist numerous types of modules. Uh, they exist, there include finitely generated modules, cyclic modules, free modules, projective modules, injective modules, flat modules, torsionless modules, simple modules, semi-simple modules, indecomposable modules, Faithful modules, torsion-free modules, notarian modules, artinian modules, graded modules, and uniform modules. Those are the types of modules. I'm not even discussing them because there are that many of them. We have limited time to finish that. We're not going to explain all those. But of course, I've left a link in the description that pertains, that will help you understand all of them, of course. And again, as I say, especially in episodes like this, Please click the links in the description and, dis and discern these beautiful concepts yourself because it does require a lot more than a teenager, a 16-year-old's podcast to be able to understand such a hard and difficult concept. So, of course, I beg you guys to go on to the links that I sent because they're, they'll help you. Although they're very, very technical and very difficult to understand, especially for someone who doesn't have a strong background in mathematics, specifically that I'm talking about myself, I still think it's exceptionally important that we figure out, that we learn about this stuff correctly. And, of course, that requires additional research. 
Now, we're going to go into the vector spaces now because vector spaces, of course, are, of course, extremely important. They're one of the main structures in abstract algebra. Uh, venturing into linear algebra, vector spaces or linear spaces are sets of objects known as vectors. A scalar is an element with, reg uh, with magnitude, for example, length or size, but no direction, whereas a vector is an element with magnitude and direction. So an example would be velocity. So speed is a scalar and velocity is a is a vector. Think about it. Speed has a magnitude. Speed, you're going 18 meters per second, for example. But if you're going 18 per meter, meters per second in the x direction, you are a vector in that situation. Your velocity is a vector in basically anywhere because you're going. There's directionality to that particular point, not point, to that particular vector. Now. These vectors can be added and multiplied by scalars. So you've probably done this in like pre-calculus or algebra. It's not anything inherently difficult. In the vector space, scalars relate to vectors in the vector space through what is known as scalar multiplication, which is, of course, stupid easy, especially considering it is a topic in linear algebra. I went on to Khan Academy and did like half of linear algebra just by doing stuff like that. Like I finished half of the... Um, half of the unit on scalars and vectors just by problem solving it because it's really, really simple. That's the thing, like, it's really easy to understand. Um, an example of scalar multiplication would be when a vector with a magnitude of 14 is multiplied by a scalar with a value of 17, what is that, 238? Um, and of course that vector would equal, would have a value of 238, right? Um, of course, basically any arbitrary unit. We're not going to give it a unit. 238 squares on the Cartesian coordinate system. Yeah, definitely not. The scalars in vector spaces are often real numbers, but there do exist vector spaces composed of scalars with complex ra values, rational values, or algebraic fields. A simple example of a vector space would be a set of Euclidean vectors. Basically, Euclidean vectors are vectors. Uh, they're ge geometric objects, of course, that have both magnitude and direction. And there is a vector space for that, for example. Another example of a vector space, specifically one that holds additional structure, is the Hilbert space. The Hilbert space is a vector space that holds additional structure of a complete inner product, which is a generalization of the notion of a dot product, which is, so imagine two, uh, two vectors, you're finding these dot product of two vectors, you have xy times xy, it would be x1 times x2, plus y1 times y2, and you get a value. So you would have like 6 plus 9 equals 15, or 72 plus 14 equals 86. That's essentially what it is. And the Hilbert space, L squared, L squared omega, I think it's what it is, like L up L power 2 omega, um, where the inner product is denoted by a an integral. Um, this is this is the Hilbert space. Like this is an example of a Hilbert space. Um, it's denoted by the vectors of f and g are equal to the definite integral where omega is the lower limit of f of x, g of x, d of x. So f of x times g of x um, of d of x. So you're finding the indefinite, or you're finding the antiderivative of f of x and g of x, where g of x has a line over it representing the complex conjugate or the complex function that has an equal magnitude to g of x, but with the opposite sign. And the equation of this is the vector of f and g equals 
the integral, the, in the definite integral, where omega is the lower limit of f of x, g of x with that line over it, d of x. This particular vector space is a key example of a vector space, one that can connect to abstract algebra. Uh, formally, a vector space over a field represented by f is a set represented by v that has two operations. Those are addition and multiplication that satisfy eight axioms. These axioms are the associativity of addition, the commutativity of, the addi of addition, the identity element of addition, which is zero, where zero is an element of v and is known as the zero vector, uh, the inverse elements of addition, where four, the inverse of four is negative four, uh, the compatibility of scalar multiplication with vector multiplication, meaning that a times b of v, bv equals b times a of v times av, not a of v, av, where v is a vector element and a and b are scalars. The identity element, of course, of scalar multiplication, where zero is an element of f and where one v equals, or actually it's where one is an element of f, where v, 1v equals v. There's also the distributivity of scalar multiplication with respect to vector addition, but not the other way around, such that a times u plus v equals au plus av, but it does not go the other way around. And this is where a is a scalar and u and v are vectors. And then the last one is the distributivity of scalar multiplication with respect to field elements, such that a plus v plus b times v equals av plus bv. Vector spaces are used extensively in physics, where multitudes of units and physical quantities can be represented with vectors. For example, velocity is both magnitude and direction, we know that, thus it can be represented with a vector. In mathematics, vector spaces are used in abstract algebra, obviously, in distributions, or generalized functions. In Fourier analysis, which is a study involving the simplification of general functions through their representations or approximations, with the sums of trigonometric functions, which we learned in the last episode, and in differential geometry, where calculus is applied to study geometry. Another algebraic structure is the lattice, which is studied both in abstract algebra and in order theory, which is the study of the notion of order through binary relations. Binary operations, for example, are plus, minus, addition, subtraction, division, multiplication. I mean, I think we know this pretty well. Uh, there exist two lattice forms in abstract algebra. There's the order lattice and the group lattice. The order lattice pertains specifically to a partially ordered set, in meaning ordered structurally, where every two elements in the set have what is known as the supremum, which is an element of an arbitrary set subset S of a particular ordered set T, where the supremum, where the supremum is the least element in T, in meaning the least valued element in T, while being greater than or equal to all of the elements in S. The group lattice is a subgroup. A subgroup is a subset of a group that is still forms a group under a particular binary operation of a real number additive group, represented by r to the power of n, which is not really r to the power of n, that spans the real vector space r to the power of n. It's not technically r to the power of n, but like we know what I mean. The next algebraic structure is the algebra itself. Now we all know what algebra is. We know it's an area of mathematics that studies numbers, geometric systems, and algebraic structures. Its name is of course derived from the Arabic word algebra, algebra, translating to both the reunion of broken parts and completion. Algebra gives us the abstract, proof-based, pure mathematics abstract algebra 
which gives rise to its own algebra. Except the abstract algebraic algebra is not synonymous with the study of algebra, even though it is technically a structure in algebra and technically is heavily involved with the study of algebra. It, it's like it's like the squares and rectangles thing, you know what I mean? That's essentially that. An algebra over a field, commonly referred to in abstract algebra simply as an algebra, is a vector space, see vector spaces in, earlier in chapter 38, holding an additional structure known as a bilinear map, which is a function that combines the elements of two vector spaces to yield elements of a third vector space. This bilinear map is a product of those two vector spaces. Considering an algebra is a vector space, it too is a set that holds the binary operations of addition, multiplication, and scalar multiplication by the elements of the field, satisfying those eight axioms referred to earlier in the chapter. Again, see vector spaces in chapter 38. We learn about the different we learn about the different eight axioms of that vector space. There exist four types of algebras. There's the unidal algebras, the zero algebras, the associative algebras, and the non-associative algebras. A unidal algebra is simply an algebra that holds either a unit, where a unit is an element that has a multiplicative inverse in the same set of elements, or an identity element represented by i, where ix equals x, where x is any number in the algebra or any element. Zero, the next algebra is a zero algebra, for elements u and v in the algebra, which are vector elements, when u v, u times v equals zero, then the algebra is a zero algebra, which means that one of those terms has to be zero. The next one is the associative algebra, which is an algebra that basically allows addition and multiplication to be associative. And then a non-associative algebra is an algebra where both addition and multiplication are assumed not to be associative. Wow, really so difficult. So definitely definitely not definitely not difficult definitely really difficult to understand those are very 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 basic types compared to the group theory types the groups the types of groups those were not easy but anyway the next the last structure well not really a structure but the last abstract algebraic concept that is extremely important to abstract algebra that we will discuss is Galois theory we're not going to give it its respect. We're not going to be discussing it in detail because it is infamously, it is famously difficult for even mathematicians to understand. Mathematicians with PhDs in mathematics to understand. So it is quite obvious to us that we pretty well need, we're going to need to kind of understand this, like, simply in simple terms. So we're not going to get into it crazily. We're not going to turn it into some insane group theory-esque topic. But anyway, well before abstract algebra was officially invented, quote-unquote, Evariste Galois, I'm pretty sure that's his name, a French teenager, literally 18 years old, submitted a paper to the Paris Academy of Sciences, which was ultimately rejected for essentially explaining a serious symmetry through the wrong things, quote-unquote. Glowis crafted a theory postulating that whether a polynomial was solvable or not depended upon whether it had a specific structure in the permutation group of its roots. The specific structure of the permutation group, now known as the Glowis group, determines whether it is a solvable group or not. Because Glowis theory is likely the most complicated and misunderstood mathematical concept ever formulated, only the very basic properties of the theory will be discerned. 
Modern Galois theory is defined as the connection between field theory, the theory of course the theory of fields, and group theory, the theory of groups. This connection is known as the fundamental theorem of Galois theory. You think about the fundamental theorems of calculus, this is similar. Uh, this is as far as we will discuss with modern Galois theory though, but I have links in the description discussing Galois theory and the fundamental theorem of Galois theory. Now Galois theory explains what was once a significant problem in algebra, but now we kind of know why it is not a significant problem in algebra. In algebra, one learns that a variable plus or minus a constant k, where k is an element of r, uh, real numbers, can be subtracted or added to the other side of the equation to get the value for the variable. So for example, x minus 7 equals 0 is the same thing as x equals 7. For polynomial, more advanced formulae may be used and must be used. Now, in the case that you can't factor a quadratic, so you don't have like x squared plus 4x plus 4, but rather x squared plus 4x minus 4, and you can't really factor it, you have to do something, you have to use a formula that I'm sure many of you know called the quadratic formula, where each term is represented by a, b, and c, and you do uh, negative b plus or minus the root of the discriminant, or the uh, discriminant, so b squared minus 4ac, and then you divide that by 2a. This determines the roots, or the zeros, or x-intercepts of a second-degree polynomial. There exists formulae for both the cubic polynomial, it's much more difficult, That's and of course the cubic polynomial is a third-degree polynomial, and the quartic polynomial. That's of course a fourth-degree polynomial, but there undoubtedly does not exist a formula for the roots of a pentic, or greater, polynomial which is, of course, a fifth degree or higher polynomial, or any higher degree. We learned through Galois' theory that the unsolvability of the roots of a fifth degree polynomial results from the fact that the permutation group, known as the Galois group, where the elements are the roots of the polynomial, is not solvable when the polynomial whose roots are elements of the set has a degree greater than four. That is when n equals the power of the highest degree in the variable in the polynomial, also known as the monic polynomial, when n is greater than or equal to five. This is essentially the basis for Galois theory. Of course, Galois theory is far more in-depth than what has been explained here, but the two explanations and connections we discerned are more, are very important to abstract algebra and to algebra in general. Now you can still graph an x to the, you can still graph a polynomial, a fifth degree polynomial. You, you can still answer, you can still answer a, the, the zeros technically for a monic polynomial, but you have to graph it, and you kind of have to take some limits. That's calculus. I, I would personally take limits. That's my own personal understanding of it. I would just take limits, see where where everything's going, and then make a educated guess. That's essentially what a limit is. <laughs> Not really. It's more in-depth than that, but of course, yeah. Now, anyway, I thought I would add in how I felt about abstract algebra to end this episode and these two episodes. First off, it is definitely not easy. I, I've heard from many people that it is not a difficult, that is not simple. It is not simple at all. But little did I know that it would be this technical. Now there always exists a rabbit hole that comes naturally with background knowledge heavy topics such as this, but the rabbit hole associated with abstract algebra was particularly noticeable, especially with group theory. Group theory was arguably the most difficult thing I've ever had to learn, mainly because I did not have sufficient background in math. Now, I try to get myself to be able to understand it. Like, I'm not just really copying the words down. I really want to understand what is going on. 
So I take a lot of time to research for these. And normally I'm able to understand them. None of these are really per none of these topics are particularly difficult anymore cuz like they're just really not that difficult. But abstract algebra was not easy. It was not easy. After group theory, we entered structures that were a lot more recognizable, and thus I had very little trouble understanding them. Basically, once we got out of rings, it was just, it was a smooth ride. I, I did not, it was very easy. It was similar to more other episodes, and it'll be similar to next episode when we learn about calculus. But anyway, let the ex exceptional difficulty of this chapter be a testament to the fact that one must learn how to dive before jumping off the high dive. Otherwise, they may belly flop. Anyway, thank you all for listening, and as always, have a good morning, afternoon, evening, and night. If you would like to support the podcast, please click the link in the description of my podcast, and subscribe as one subscribes on Patreon. Unfortunately, I cannot grant any additional royalties to those who donate, who donate, but I do encourage you all to donate if you wish. Anyway, take care and stay curious.